Bell Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you. Wherever you may be, this is your host, Bruce Ash, along with my good friend and Inside Track co-host... Eb Wilkinson. ...welcoming you to a very special edition of Inside Track. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll welcome your calls today at the Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus Hotline. That's 790-2040. We have another extraordinary show for you. In just a moment, we'll visit in studio with noted political analyst... political scientist, also from Israel, and nationally known, sometimes controversial, commentator and news presenter, Dr. Hani Zubida, to discuss what the heck is going on in Israel with the Prime Minister's elections. After we speak to Dr. Zubida, Amity Amity Schles will join us. Amity is the best-selling author and Calvin Coolidge biographer. She's an opinion writer with The Hill We're so happy she is joining us today, considering I've been trying to get her on the show for many, many months now. This portion of the show was brought to you by my co-host, Eb Wilkinson and Gary Imus from Imus Wilkinson Investment Management, whose baby steps approach to your wealth management is designed so you never have to solely depend upon socialist security. I have said that wrong for four months, and you've never corrected me. I'm fine with you doing it. You're doing a great job. <laughs> okay, yeah, whatever. Eb manages family How wealth. many times did you mispronounce Tucson Iron Medical Works? Oh, just once or twice. That's nothing. I do that a lot. Me and Joe, <laughs> me and Joe Biden, you know. Uh, Eb manages our family wealth and does a fabulous job. Call Eb at 777- 1911 and let him help you also. Let's get to some news from this past week. Good news. The University of Arizona announces the hiring of Gonzaga assistant coach Tommy Lloyd to coach the men's basketball team. And also this week, women's coach Adia Barnes got a much-deserved raise to coach the Lady Cats. The rest of the news of the week, not quite as optimistic. After being against packing the Supreme Court for years, now the president wants to pack the court and add as many as four new justices. This is the first time in American history a move is taken by a political party to control the court to subvert the U.S. Constitution to suit one-party political rule. I predict this effort will fail, but the American public must speak up now. The surge at the border continues, largely unreported by a compliant media establishment as illegal entrants are released and then sent with government support anywhere they want in the USA, making it impossible to track their whereabouts and likely allowing the cartels to sell them, these children, into white slavery. China and Russia continue their bellicose behaviors, the Russians in Ukraine with tens of thousands of soldiers on the border, and the Chinese communists in the South China Sea and Taiwan Straits menacing the Taipei government and their citizens. New leftist rioting in Minneapolis over the accidental shooting of a black man this past week while he was resisting arrest. When will mothers and fathers of these children teach them to obey orders from police, especially when they have outstanding warrants. More calls from millennial left today favoring abolishing police and federal officers. Local Pima County attorney Conover wants less prosecutions and more mental health care. That ought to be a comfort to anyone living in Pliskin Acres. Let's turn the entire country over to crooks and killers. A newspaper in New York City reports... A hundred days after President Trump left office, 
the world is wonderful and more people think the country is calmer. Really? Did they just pull the lefties? Prince Philip laid to rest today in London. He was an iconoclast. Notable leftist and self-proclaimed American patriot Robert De Niro complains he's broke. Seems he owes the U.S. Treasury millions in back taxes. Will this Fokker go to debtor's prison? We'll see. That's F-O-C-K-E-R, just in case Mr. Bustos or Patty are listening, or even Charles. Hello, Charles. Lastly, but not certainly leastly, Tucson Police Chief Chris Magnus nominated to become the Customs and Border Patrol National Chief. Tucsonans thrilled to see him go, but now he's America's problem because he is the perfect feckless official for Biden-Harris to execute their end of American sovereignty. Mr. Producer, Mr. Producer, it's time for our first break. When, when Eb and I return, we'll be joined in studio by Dr. Hani Zubida. We'll talk Israeli politics and society. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a jiffy. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing, and then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through, but that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house, we sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. It's termite season. Bugs fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Ah, run for your life! Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. Ask not... What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time. With Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson. IMUSWilkinson.com. 777-1911. 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. This portion of today's show brought to you by my friends Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus and Essential Pest Control. You know, we're entering the big pest control season here in Tucson. Call Eric Rudin at Essential to make sure your home and family are safe from those pesky desert critters. I want to stress to all of our listeners, these are two great locally owned businesses you can depend upon. I do, and so should you. Our next guest is Dr. Hani Zubida, and he's making his second appearance on Inside Track and his first in-person. 
His son is a superb athlete and is being schooled and trained here in Arizona, which makes us fortunate to meet with him in person. Dr. Zubina is a professor at, and I'm going to goof this up, honey, Yisrael, Yisrael Community College, and, and that's in Nazareth? That's right off Nazareth, yes. All right. And he's a well-known news presenter and political commentator on his on Israel TV and radio. Thanks for joining us, Hani. You were with us last year after an inconclusive national election in Israel. A few weeks ago, there was a fourth, fourth yeah. election, uh, but it appears no less determinative as to the national leadership. Yeah, surprise, surprise again. It's inconclusive. And again, my prediction would be that within one year time... You were off by three weeks. Yes, Let's, I uh, was. I'm sorry I should say that. I apologize for everybody who uh, tuned in last year and said, you, I'm off. Yeah, but I, I would say that, in my opinion, this time it would be even sooner than the year is up. Uh, I cannot see as to the result, and when we analyze the different forces, there's no stable coalition for more than a year. Tell me again why there are so many elections. Well, in Israel, first, we have a different type of governmental system. Uh, we have a coalition governmental system. We don't have a majoritarian system. You, we vote for parties. And the prime minister is not necessarily the guy who gains the most votes. Is the guy who gets to somehow assemble a coalition which is 50% plus one, which is 61 seats in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. Uh, in the last two years, Benjamin Netanyahu had a relatively solid coalition about three years ago, and he forfeited it uh, because he wouldn't go for a biannual um, a budget. This time, I think the, the waters are too stormy for him, and he can't really manage to gain the 61 seats coalition. Um, different forces, um, extreme Israeli Orthodox Party, uh, extreme Muslim uh, Orthodox Party, and all of these are not somehow subtotaling to 61 for anyone. Okay. So, honey, uh, you have known and you have talked with Bibi Netanyahu over the years. You've observed him as a observer, as a political scientist. Uh, and you've seen him up close and personal. You've you've had discussions with him. Is he the man he was 10 or 12 years ago? In my opinion, no, he's not. The, the old Netanyahu, the guy that I remember from 10, 12 years ago, his second term, um, was a way more focused, way more able, way more concentrated person. I think that back then, his major worry was the state of Israel. And he was able to concentrate and get Israel to, um, I would probably say the highest period it had since the late 70s. And in the last few years, for various of reasons, he's not as focused, he's not as concentrated. We should remind everybody that he is the second prime minister that stands at trial the second consecutive right. prime minister after Ehud Olmert and Ehud Olmert went to jail. Right. He had his confidant, the lawyer, Yaakov Weinroth, one of the brightest legal minds of Israel ever, who passed away a few years back, who urged him to cut the deal and just let it be, and he wouldn't. And right now I think he is kind of like, he's trying to catch up the wheel, but he's unable to, and he has major issues with his reign, and I think this is 
the major reason for the instability in the Israeli political system. And the instability is also within his family unit as well, from what I understand. Uh, his wife uh, is under attack constantly, yeah. as well as his two sons, who are now Twitter freaks and and constantly tweeting uh, out message. Um, how does that influence public opinion, as as well as this trial that has to be taking a big toll on him? Well, I, I, I have to say that I, I completely dislike the attacks on his wife. Most of them stem from misogynistic, really unworthy type of um, statements against her, which I don't like, but that impacts him. His sons, who were very young back when he started, came of age and, and as you said, Twitter freaks. Um, you can be a Twitter freak, but you can still maintain some sort of decent language and not go down... Um, with um, fights that are, I won't say heavy. irrelevant, but they're heavy with wordings. And, and you know, Israelis, when we get down and to business, it can go messy. Street fighters. Yes. <laughs> Yair has gone to many street fights. He was, he, he, he prosecuted and was prosecuted by people for malicious uh, um, uh, wordings, for for uh, fraudulence uh, uh, ads, he, he went through the ropes. And the problem is that Netanyahu, well, you, you spoke about my son, we all have sons. Um, we have this kind of like soft spot for our kids, and Netanyahu needs to take care of this, especially with Yair. And as for his wife, um, to say the least, it's unfair. It's unbecoming. It shouldn't have happened. Uh, his wife is not a public figure. People should leave her be. Uh, but that doesn't really happen. Uh, and I think it's the first time in, well, we had Leah Rabin, if you remember, right. but it wasn't, the social media wasn't always there. And that's, and that's a great point because that all happened before social media. Uh, Prime Minister Rabin's wife, you know, was in, in, involved in some issues, and and it was a different world at that time. Today, you know, even then though, the press was, you know, rock 'em sock 'em. Yeah, know, well, the newspapers, tabloids, and so on were pretty tough. Rabin resigned because yeah. of her, because of what she did with right. the twenty thousand dollars. It wasn't allowed to hold foreign currency in Israel, and she had this secret bank account, right. which was. Um, they found it was out. shopping money or something. Yes, probably. Leah Rabin, again, we have It's just 20,000. <laughs> yeah, God rest her soul. But but with, with, with Sarah Netanyahu, it's everything. Mm. You have the cleaning lady from the prime minister household, and she comes out and she speaks, and all of a sudden, instead of talking about the COVID and, and the problems that we have, economic and social, we talk about the cleaning lady of Sarah Netanyahu. And it becomes personal, and I think this all creates a huge destruction for him. And I should say, he, he is a, an extremely intelligent, charismatic, a very well-educated person, and he knows his stuff. But I don't think he's doing what he's supposed to do. And I think there are a lot of sidetracks which he's taken. Um, and this is the reason we see this upcoming election again. So we've again. been the past roughly 13 months with a very serious, you know, health and economic sort of situation with the virus and, and all that. Um, it appears that Israel has taken a very 
uh, tough sort of a stance in terms of lockdowns, in terms of getting uh, citizens vaccinated at all, uh, the the economy and, and health. Uh, where do both of those stand today? And how much of a role has the prime minister, you know, helped or hurt that response? Well, you ask different people, different people would give you different yeah, answers. Sure. What do you think? And I, I think... I think he did very bad at the beginning, but then he kind of like accumulated everything and he composed himself and he came with a huge plan, the vaccination plan. We right not now, much different. I mean, not much different to have been totally sort of socked in the in the jaw at the beginning and not knowing what to do and then figuring it out. Is that kind of the idea? Well, yes and no, because he had a lot of political pressure from the ultra-Orthodox, which was the main hub for the dissemination of the COVID in Israel. And then what he did, surprisingly, I should say, he went and he bet on the Pfizer vaccination. And right now the numbers are almost five and a half million people are vaccinated with the first shot and almost five million are vaccinated with the second shot. It might not sound a lot in the United States. No, but that's almost 80% of the population. That's 80% of the population above the age of 16, which is amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I should say so. The other problem you were referring to is the economic issue. And and Israel runs for the past two years without a budget. And that's a big deal. And that's one of the biggest problems that you have why this election is so important, right? Yes. Because running a nation without a budget is like having no way to stream money to various functions. Now, people think, okay, we have the past budget and we can somehow use it in order to maintain the budgetary, but you can't really because there are tons of things that are needed to be signed and new functions that have to be assigned by the money that is allocated via the budget. And Netanyahu is unable to pass the budget. I would say that he tried to pass a budget. But the problem was that part of this game in Israel, the coalition game, he promised a biannual budget. And, and he wanted delivering. Yes, and he wanted to pass an annual budget. And everybody resisted. This is why we went to elections again. Um, in my opinion, he's trying to push hard to get people together to agree on a coalition ad hoc. This is why I don't believe it will maintain its course for four years. And he will try to pass a budget. He might work work it out with Bennett. I don't see him working it out with the extreme Islamist party, Ram. Um, I don't see it happening. So with all of this going on, there there's also this problem on two and a half sides. You've got enemies of Israel and the big one, Iran, uh, developing nuclear weapons, and certainly they have some sort of ballistic missile uh, uh, capability, and and lots of lots of war drums possibly. Um, how does the instability in the government influence uh, Israel's readiness and Israel's ability to to live in that neighborhood under these conditions? Um, the, in Israel, these are like two separate realms, the security and the political. And Mm -hmm. I should say, uh, thankfully, I know you've heard what happened the last few days in Mm -hmm. Iran and in the nuclear plant. Israel is maintaining its course in terms of maintaining security of its borders. And Netanyahu was amazing. Um, um, 
working together with President Trump, gaining some peace agreements in the Middle East with Bahrain, with the United Emirates, which was excellent for Israel. And I applauded him and I said, more, more, please, more. Uh, the Iranian issue is complicated. Um, sometimes it takes the backseat because there are a lot of covered operations that are happening and Netanyahu doesn't want to pinpoint to that place uh, specifically. Um, I think right now even Netanyahu understands that the most important issue is the inner social resilience of the Israeli society. I think he's, a, I think he's worried. I think he's worried because the numbers of participation are going down. The Arab population. Mean voters? Or, yes. Or? yes. And I think he's worried. He tried to rally the Is there voters. a lack of faith in the, in the government? I think or in a, him? Well, I think it's a combination. I think um, fourth time in two years coming out to vote, people are saying, oh, you know what, let it be. I so don't there's fatigue. So then what if there's a fifth and a sixth time? I mean, how long will That's, this... Is there anything written in the Israeli constitution that says... You, know, you get eight times at bat, and then that's it. Or that's the easiest question I had. No, because we don't have a constitution. Well, I, okay. but, <laughs> but the thing is, no, the thing is, we, we the system was so it was designed so loosely by Ben Gurion and mm -hmm. the Labour Party leaders. They never even thought about a scenario in which the government won't hold for four years, and one side wouldn't be able to master some sort of coalition. Right now, this is the case, and Netanyahu is worried. I know he's worried, because the Arab population fell about to the 50% threshold line, and the Israeli periphery doesn't vote. And the numbers are amazing. You know Batyam, which is the city right, right south of Tel Aviv on the beach line. 52% of the eligible voters did not vote. In the is United that normal, States, or is that just... That's it. In the United States, people might say, okay, that's not bad, but in Israel, Israel. that's really bad because our numbers were at the top 70s and all of the sudden we're looking at 40s, 50s, which is a problem and more so this might create a democratic deficit. People that do not come out to vote what they show at the end of the line is a complete distrust of the system. And in Israel, we have problems. We all know them. In the South, we have an issue with the sovereignty over the Bedouin population. Mm -hmm. um, in the North, we have an issue with some of the Druze and some of the Arab population. So this might create a disintegration of sovereignty of the state, and that Netanyahu doesn't want. He was talking to the Arab population in this election, trying to muster up some sort of participation he gained half a seat from them, which is not unusual. Uh, but the numbers are bad, and I think he knows that. Mm. And I think he's trying to stop it. Let me, I, I want to go to a piece, February 10th in the Jerusalem Post. It was a pre-election piece by an author, Susan Haddis Roloff, and she wrote about the upcoming election at that time. Quote, the headline that enraged Dr. Ben Haim uh, was the state of Israel versus Benjamin Netanyahu, even though he admits that it was accurate, that it accurately reflects the actual title of the, of the indictment. His complaint is it reflects the political attitude that old Ashkenazi elites, these are, these are uh, Eastern European Jews, uh, who wished to see Netanyahu convicted and kicked out of the political arena and who represent only half of Israel. The other half, the so-called second Israel, which represents 
Israel's predominantly non-Ashkenazi, these would be North African and, and Middle Eastern uh, Jews, uh, that population in the periphery adores Bibi Netanyahu. Now, uh, Hannah, your, your family is originally from Iraq. Yeah, I was born you're in Saf- Iraq. You're Sephardim. Uh, what's your reaction to Dr. Ha- Haim's? Ben Haim. Ben, ben Haim. Yeah. Avishai. Uh, uh, comments. Uh, Avishai is a great friend. I, I love him dearly. Um, we share studios together from now and then. Um, his theory about this notion of the old elite trying to take Benjamin Netanyahu out, I, to a certain extent, I would agree with the notion of this fight over resources, but not specifically Benjamin Netanyahu. Benjamin Netanyahu has been the Israeli prime minister for the past 12 years. He has constructed the Supreme Court in his own image. He has constructed all the legal system in his own image, including the prosecutor, the national prosecutor. He has constructed the legal system in his own image. You have to remember, and that is mostly for our listeners, we do not have checks and balances in the Israeli system. 99.5% of legislation in Israel is legislated by the coalition which controls the legislator, the Knesset. Now, trying to now scream, I am being somehow prosecuted by this first Israel. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's father was a professor at the Hebrew U, historian, very right. well known. Right. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu came from a very respected neighborhood, Rehavia in Jerusalem. Uh, his wife also, Ben Arzi, comes from a very respected family. I think that the attempt to somehow portray him as the second Israel protector doesn't really work if you look at his um, policies throughout the last 10 years. Um, he has been constantly trying to somehow appease the old elite in Israel, which he is a part of. Avishai's argument is that his voters are mostly Sephardi, as you said, the numbers really do not add up. Um, only 17% of the total voters, uh, Mizrahim, vote for the Likud. They comprise somehow about 50% from the Jews. Um, the amazing finding that I had and published in Haaretz is that most of the Mizrahim do not participate. The Mideastern Jews do not participate in the Israeli national election. And that has been the trend in the last six years, which is really worrying as well. Because this group is in dire need of representation. And their representative rights right now are Shas, the ultra-Orthodox Sephardi party. So if there is a fifth election, and it looks as though there will be, what will the issue be? Oh. Um, <laughs> good question. I think it will be Benjamin Netanyahu. That's the issue of the so last four elections. it's a referendum on him. Yeah, it is. It, the last four elections, they call it the the BB camp versus the no BB camp. I think it's going to continue. But is there an answer? Is, is there an answer? Is there somebody who could replace him, whether it's inside Likud or outside? Well, right now... And put that coalition together. Yeah, right now, it seems that the head of the Yesh Atid party, uh, Yair Lapid... Who, who, who had a great campaign, I should say. It, it is extremely um, um, complicated to understand. He literally gave up six seats in order to maintain his side of the coalition with the labor and merits, and he did not attack them, what we call drinking their um, base. He did not attack them, so they would pass the threshold. They got seven and six seats, um, and he got only 17, and then people came to me and said, honey, look, you've 
predicted that he's going to gain between 20 and 23 seats. And I said, he did. But what he did is he maintained his coalition. And that's the reason we're now in a deadlock. Because if Yair Lapid would have go would have gone and, and tried to take everything for Meretz and the Avodah, Benjamin Netanyahu would have, would have had a coalition by now. The thing is that we are looking at a campaign that will be all about Netanyahu. Well, honey, we're going to need to leave it right there. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, best of luck to your son uh, with his schooling and, and uh, ath- athletic uh, 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 feats. And uh, we hope to have you back on uh, before the fifth election, whatever that may be. And uh, you always bring your A game, and we appreciate it. I'll be happy to be here. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Safe travels back to Israel. Mr. Producer, let's go to our next break. When we return, uh, we will uh, welcome Amity Schles. You're listening to Inside Track. We'll be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to tucsonironretail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. It's termite season. Fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Ah, Run for your life! Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. Our guest for the rest of the show today is author and opinion maker Amity Schles. She is a conservative American author and newspaper and magazine columnist. Amity writes about politics and economics from a classical liberal perspective. Schles has authored five books, including three New York Times bestsellers, Coolidge, The Forgotten Man, and The Great Society. She currently chairs the Board of Trustees at the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. Do you still uh, chair it, uh, Amity? Amity? Hello, Amity. I know I'm right she's... here. Yes, sir, I do chair the board. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, and she also serves as a presidential scholar at King at the King's College in New York City. She's a recipient of the uh, Bastiat Prize. Thanks so much for joining us, Amity. Glad to be there. 
Yeah. I've been trying to get you on Inside Track for about a year. Uh, many thanks to Stephen Manfredi, who uh, has helped make you available. I admit I'm a geek. I loved your Coolidge book. I thought it was interesting that former Fed Chief Alan Greenspan praised your book, saying it was one of the best books of the year, and it was history that read like a novel. That actually, I think, is a great compliment, don't you think? Yes, I'm very lucky. Um, and <laughs> Coolidge is very lucky and, and great society. I think it's great society. He said, like, read like a novel. That, um and that was a very kind of Chairman Greenspan. His book is not bad. His book that he wrote with Adrian Woldridge about capitalism, it, I think it was underappreciated in the United States. Chairman Greenspan wrote a book, I'm just staring at it, uh, Capitalism in America, Greenspan and Woldridge. It's, it's a lovely book. So, so let me uh, return the compliment. Mm. Robert Mary, who has appeared here twice, praised Coolidge by writing, the Coolidge years represent the country's most distilled experiment in supply-side economics. That success is the central Coolidge legacy brought home with telling authority uh, in Miss Schley, uh, Schley, Schley's works. Um, that... Uh, I, Robert Mary, I got to know quite a bit after uh, talking with him about his book on uh, William McKinley, and um, uh, that really says something about your writing. Okay, so you recently wrote a column titled, Presidents Should Avoid Great for Their Own Good and the Nation's. Amity, how so? How so? Well, you... If you uh, pick great goals, sometimes you don't meet them, first of all, right? Coolidge's rule was under-promise, over-deliver, not over-promise, under-deliver. And also there's a second danger uh, which occurs often. When a president talks a lot about great, then there's slippage and it becomes about whether he's great. And that is not just President Trump. Think of Franklin Roosevelt. The, the election is about me. Franklin Roosevelt said, or um, it's a problem for leaders. I think you were talking about Netanyahu uh, prior. Mm -hmm. Even people we admire and feel we need, uh, when they think they should stay forever, um, that is damaging to Democratic, Republican, lowercase dr institutions. And after they're gone, well, you want another king, or the di a dynasty evolves. And dynasty is, is not American. Yeah. So, so, so it's a problem. The institutions of the United States are great. We serve them, even presidents, and it's better um, to aim for mo modest improvements with great institutions. Better for the polity. That, that's at least the record as I've as I've studied it, uh, looking at the 20th century. So, you wrote a book on the Great Society. How great was the Great Society? And that book has a problem, which is the the title is ironic. Um, and that's bad for authors. Uh, don't do that again. Maybe I should have called it silent majority. Anyhow, um, great society was about Lyndon Johnson's great society. And I, I fold Nixon in there too, because he expanded the government. He really was part of the great society, which is interesting. A Republican following a Democrat, both doing something. What was that? Johnson said, we, we're not going to be just a good society, we're going to be a great society, and he set a few goals, very similar to today, the idealism of young people, the idea that the economy is a given, assume the economy and let's go, right? The economy will pay for everything. Among Johnson's goals were curing poverty, he used that verb, C-U-R-E, cure, he didn't say, reduce poverty a little, he said cure, 
improved reading and math, um, uh, overall uh, reduced tension between African Americans, white Americans, other Americans. If you look at the record, um, we didn't cure poverty. Indeed, the rate of decrease in poverty decelerated into the period after the Great Society. Um, well, we're really concerned about reading and math scores today, aren't we? Um, and we apparently didn't reduce tension between races in the United States. So with such such big ambitions, the Great Society failed, and it, it left a result that, I mean, it's interesting, President Biden doesn't say, I want to be like Lyndon Johnson. He says, I want to be like Franklin Roosevelt. And that's probably because too many people remember the results of Lyndon Johnson. The evidence is too proximate and palpable. But but it, it was a sad result. It also uh, bankrupted our, our, our government uh, for the future, particularly younger Americans, because great society commitments are very expensive in the out years, and it's our children who will have to pay them. Yes. So um, students today learn. Yeah, I, I heard um, I watched a video with you at uh, Hillsdale. Uh, I think it was about a year old. Uh, and you talked about how students learn today about the Great Society and the New Deal and, and uh, you know, the great successes, you know, uh, of, of both of those uh, presidential programs. How has this influenced storytelling for later generations and, and what people now believe happened during the New Deal and what happened during the Great Society? Because it's not exactly as written, is it? You know, I went back and looked, um, and I was just stunned at the disparity between what the textbooks say and the reality. And that, and now the textbooks are to the left of where they were when I first went back and looked, right? So so um, long ago, uh, I thought, well, I'm going to figure out about the Great Depression, what happened. And I went back and looked, and I'd always learned um, uh, that the Great Depression um, was terrible, and the New Deal made it a little better. At least it gave people hope. That's what we learned, and that it was ended by... World War II, um, and Roosevelt was inspiring. Uh, definitely Roosevelt inspired people. He won, that was the president in the New Deal, who led the New Deal. Uh, president Roosevelt won a, an astounding victory in 1936, four years into the New Deal. However, um, what Roosevelt, what can you give man? What can you give people? What's the most important thing um, a government has to give people, uh, setting aside foreign policy, security, defense security, the opportunity to get a job. That's right. And the, the New Deal in that period from 1930 to 1940, um, but particularly as the years mounted, the unemployment did not go below 10%. There are awful fights about whether it was 14 or 16%. That's uh, the difference between <coughs> terrible and awful. That's what made the Depression great, the duration of the unemployment and why we consider the New Deal lovable given that. We have to think the economy was awfully messed up and that Roosevelt tried awfully hard to forgive that. So when I went back and looked, I found a few factors that are not in our history books. I'll just name two that contributed to the abiding, terrible unemployment that our grandparents or parents or great-grandparents suffered. One was labor policy, which is under discussion today. We generally, through government policy, first under Hoover, actually, these, these errors are bipartisan, and then definitely under Roosevelt, 
put upward pressure on wages through um, the, the era's equivalent of the minimum wage, through exhorting businesses to pay more on a cockeyed theory that then people, uh, the workers would have money and they'd buy back the car, say, at an auto, at an auto company. Um, what does that do when an employer is under pressure? And I know you have listeners who are employers. When an employer is under pressure because his profits are less, to be pressured to pay more to his employees, what does he, she do? That employer will be more hesitant to rehire, will hire the most skilled workers he has, um, and, and will lay off faster. That, that's common sense. Uh, macroeconomists will tell you all this about uh, equilibrium and so on. The common sense reality is that's what transpired in the 30s. Employers were hesitant to rehire or to hire and to hire new workers, very tough on African-Americans and less skilled workers, because they were told they had to keep wages higher than they could afford. So I want to mention that and underscore because I just never learned that in school. The evidence is clear as day. Economists have data on that. I can recommend some of the scholars, you know, who, who teach econ full-time have written on this. One is Leo Hanyan at UCLA. But, you know, for some reason that's missing from the instruction in history and the labor union movement, which, of course, contributed to the upward pressure on wages in the 30s, is treated as something merely inspiring from the period and not damaging. And uh, I, I just, you know, I'd never seen that data until I studied it. Yeah, Amity, Eb Wilkinson here. Uh, both Bruce and I are employers. We both sign the front of the paycheck before we ever get a chance to sign the back of the paycheck. And I will tell you, you're absolutely correct. Anytime, now I don't have anybody that I'm paying minimum wage to, but anytime minimum wage rises, you know, that puts pressure on me to raise the wages of my employees. Um, right. And one because of the employees things... Employees think I'm, I'm that much higher than minimum wage. I'm $2, I'm $10, right? They, Correct. They're aware of that ratio. And you want to ha- make your workers happy. Correct. And, and I got to tell you, from my viewpoint, um, there should be no minimum wage. People should be paid what they're worth. And without a minimum wage, there will be more people employed today uh, than there have been in the past, number one. Number two, uh, the minimum wage was never meant to be a living wage. It was meant to be uh, a, a wage where somebody could learn how to learn, learn how to get the skills they need to move up. That's right. Well, what, 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 what happened in the 30s is big labor became big labor, right? Unions were important. The Wagner Act, which was the law that obtained, that was Roosevelt's law, was a real tiger of a law compared to our union law today, which is more of a closer to a pussycat thanks to uh, it being neutered <laughs> later. Um, and that law really scared employers. And what did it do? It drove a wedge between employers and employees. What are we doing when we hire someone? We're taking a risk. We're going to teach them, right? Um, we're going to maybe teach someone who doesn't know, and we're hoping that he, she will, will – um, end up really skillful, really valuable to the company, our friend, all those things, right? Absolutely. Um, Do you want to hire someone who's going to be combative with you and go to court with you? Not particularly, right? Given your number one goal, which is to serve your company and expand it so you can hire other people. That's what that period did. It made a false war between workers and employers through politics. Mm, That's that's a... 
Sure. That's a very yeah. interesting uh, idea. I, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody else uh, articulate it quite the way you just said, Amity. Well, it was new to me, and I grew up with all the romance of unions, too. I'm from the Midwest. I saw the UAW leader, Walter Ruther, on mm -hmm. television in the 60s. He was a wonderful man. He was brave and nice. Well, nice to his workers, right? Um, he fought mightily against the big auto companies, and it was all a beautiful drama, except it hurt workers. And we it's very important that we acknowledge that in the United States. The United States is not a class society, and we made it a class society, society through romanticizing labor in that yeah. way. And who did we cut out? Those people didn't happen to be in the unions. Um, again, very often African-Americans and people with fewer skills who would love to train those people, employers, but not if they're locked in a war in, in season in, season out, if they're a big company in negotiations with the administration having fun playing with two sides off each other, which happens with very big companies and big unions. And I was appalled at that. And that was a new discovery for me. So you go back and look at that. Um, uh, we all love workers. It's unions one has to question. Mm. You, it, you and your co-author, uh, Matthew Denhart, wrote of The Great Society, equality of opportunity did increase in the United States during Johnson's era and after him. Medicare, you could perhaps argue, delivered but only at a cost to later generations, a bill that has come due and with which the Biden administration will have to reckon. Many of the other great society programs prove to be disappointments or worse. Poverty, and you talked about this a while ago, poverty did not disappear with the great society, but settled seemingly permanently at about the level of 10%. So we've spent roughly $20 trillion on the Great Society projects and their successors. Um, you mentioned in that um, Hillsdale interview uh, the high cost of good intentions. Was it all yeah. worth it? I, I don't think so. And I have to say, um, I'll, I'll just mention, Den Hart and I edited the Coolidge book. I wrote the Great Society alone, so I don't want to drag him into my book. Um, the great, when I finished Great Society, it was more than a year ago, um, and I, I didn't really, I wasn't really thinking about um, all the rough events we've been through, maybe it was two years ago now, um, since including involving race relations, right. and I'm sure that I missed one point when I was writing Great Societies. We taught Americans from the Great Society on, and that is where it comes from. Lyndon Johnson gave a speech at Howard U and said, um, you know, you can't just put two people at the beginning of a race and say go if one of them has been in shackle before. We, ergo, effectively saying we need affirmative action. And that was a, an important sentiment at the time, but we've so institutionalized affirmative action in all our culture, in the current diversity push, that we've divided the country. Uh, and that's what we're feeling now with when one group gets special treatment in that way, seemingly permanently, more and more, you divide the country. And we've turned away. What, what would have happened if the Great Society, let's just do a, a thought experiment, had said the goal of the Great Society is for every American to be able to do trigonometry by age 15, and we will spend tens of thousands per kid directly to be sure they can do trigonometry and can write well. Uh, and can interact well with adults in stressful situations. 
spend more, people would be employed. Instead, we spent that kind of entrenching the entitlement culture. And that's what uh, John Kogan, who is the author of a book called The High Cost of Good Intentions, has quantified ad, just right ad infinitum. It's a, um, so we have taught ourselves that what we do is is treat one group as special. And that can't be good for the special group, not no. at all, um, because African-Americans can work as well as non-African-Americans. And instead we've taught um, that there must always be permanent or affirmative action. Um, let alone what that does to non-African Americans, because it makes a permanent sense of unfairness. I, I was, what, the, the great it was it was yeah. somebody who talked about the racism of low expectations. Well, yeah, that's. Um, I was thinking, you know, of George Bush. I used to work a little bit with President Bush. The soft bigotry of low expectations. That's right. Yeah. And and we're in a situation now where we are being soft bigots. Because African Americans can do what non African Americans can do. And it would have been so much better if we'd had a national algebra program and it would have been wonderful and, and said all the rewards are going to be for reaching certain benchmarks of education. I think part of the problem, uh, and I'm sure you've thought about this too, is giving money to the schools is not making sure everyone knows trigonometry. Yeah, that's so disparaging. <laughs> very yeah. good. Yeah. That's not the same. So trigonometry is hard. A lot of us, including me, have to do it three or four times till we, before we get it. But but it's it, we can do it at least adequately for a job. Um, most of us can do it. it we, um, and I think one of the great errors was funding education institutions, that is public schools and so on, rather than focusing on the outcome more directly. And that, that was a big problem with the Great Society. It wasn't outcome-based. It was, it was about, you know, Lyndon Johnson was a wonderful, loving man, and he, he was, said he wrote laws the way other men eat chocolate chip cookies. Oh. That, is, he, that was his skill set. He could pass a law, right? He had been the, the, leader, the leader of the Senate, master of the Senate. But Passing a law is not the same as getting a result, and we confuse the two. In fact, Joe Califano, who worked for him, wrote a beautiful book about this. Um, and that's the problem. Passing a law feels good. We all feel unhappy when all of our society is not happy, but it's not. The, it doesn't yield uh, the optimal result. But how condescending is that to say, if you're African American, if you're a minority, we know that you'll never, ever, ever be able to compete fairly with any other race out there. And by the way, we also realize you're not smart enough to get an ID to vote. I mean, what, what a condescending attitude, a, a holier-than-thou superior attitude for the government to have. That's right. And effectively, great society policy trained that attitude. And it, that was the area I didn't focus on enough in the book because I focused on a whole lot of other things, which were also problematic, including that, you know, labor cost again. Um, but but why would we train people that that they were wronged forever? Well, we're doing uh, we're doing that right now. I mean, the the number of people that are not working because they're getting so much money from the government now, it doesn't pay them to go to work. You know, it's just what they're doing right now is just a, a uh, redistribution of wealth. It, that's right, and it, it makes someone feel better somewhere, maybe. But it, the other thing is, w one of the big lessons of the Great Society was it was it was always like a, a math problem. Given a strong economy, given colon a strong economy, ergo, blah blah blah, 
and then the economy was not strong. But it's not to make people feel good as much as it is to get control of them. Right. Given a strong economy, we can afford anything, which is the current attitude. Given a strong economy, but the given failed. And I try to I track that very closely, um, you know, with various foolish decisions by government in the early 70s. And what does that mean, the economy failed? Because it's a long time ago. It means that when you go to buy a house, if you even dare to buy a house, it has 1.5 or 2 fewer bedrooms than you would like because it costs so much because of the interest rate. So um, if the interest rate is 10% or 15%, which it was, well, you just get that much less house. Or if you go to find a job, it pays less well. Or if you know, you, you want to sell your house, you cannot sell it. Or a stock market that is flat for a generation. Today, um, young people assume that the Dow and the S&P and, you know, the NASDAQ will always go up kind of as a birth rate. Along with um, Bitcoin. It, along with Bitcoin. Um, and it just didn't. It, it, they, they were pretty sure they were going to pass the thousand mark on the Dow in the mid-60s. And it just didn't. We're going to need to leave it right there. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I so enjoyed having you. I love uh, seeing your, your videos on uh, online. Um, and, and until uh, we meet again, um, until next Saturday, this is Bruce Ash and Ed Wilkinson, Wilkinson wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the, the cities and the counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap, and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911.